Uh, I am <clears throat> incredibly blessed uh, to have such a supportive wife who uh, usually sits through all three worship services. And it's a special blessing after the eight o'clock service because she usually gives me so much energy of saying, I really heard you here and here and here. And then there's the odd day here and there when she says, I had no idea what you were talking about. <clears throat> <clears throat> so uh, today may be one of those days. Uh, and, and so I would call to your memory the book of order that says uh, that, that, that true worship happens when the word is rightly preached and rightly heard. So you may have to rightly work a little harder to hear this morning because this is kind of a confusing sermon. But I worked real hard on it. So uh, I'm going to add a little bit more scripture that may make it a more clear of where I'm headed with this. Uh, but we're going to need prayer before this sermon. So uh, would you join me? <clears throat> Gracious God, we ask your blessing, your Holy Spirit be upon us as we seek to hear your living word speaking to us anew in the life-giving light of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The gospel reading today comes from Matthew chapter 2. I'll be continuing on uh, through, uh, through verse 14. Listen for the word of the Lord. <clears throat> In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now after they left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up and take the child and its mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So my question today is what's so wise about the wise men? They're often portrayed as kings. The Bible doesn't call them kings. They were magi, astrologers. In ancient times, there was no screen time, no Netflix. You had two options, stare down at the fire or look up at the stars in the nighttime. The magi were astrologers, stargazers. But the wise men is what the tradition calls them. And so I asked the question, what's so wise about these wise men? What makes them so wise? Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled, the scripture says. And that's something I'll keep on coming back to today. Herod and all Jerusalem were afraid. And that's part of what I want to unpack today. But I want to get started with a story that goes back to Mark Twain. Mark Twain, who was born in 1835, late in his life he published an essay about when he was 15 years old. I'd like to share that essay with you from Mark Twain. He says, quote, when I was a boy of 15, I had a friend whose society was very dear to me because I was forbidden by my mother to partake of it. He was a joyful, impudent, satirical, and delightful young black man, a slave who daily preached sermons from the top of his master's woodpile with me as the sole audience. One of his texts was this, you tell me where a man gets his corn pone, and I'll tell you what his opinions is. The black philosopher's idea was that a man is not independent and cannot afford views which might interfere with his bread and butter. If he would prosper, he must train with the majority in large matters of the moment, like politics and religion. He must think and feel with the bulk of his neighbors or suffer damage in his social standing and his business prosperities. Twain goes on to name some of the problems of the day and then he continues, does this mean they all put in extensive study and examination or only feeling? The latter, I think. We all do no end of feeling, and we mistake it for thinking. And out of it we get an aggregation which some people consider a boon. Its name is public opinion. It is held in reverence. It settles everything. Some think it is the voice of God." End quote by Mark Twain. Mark Twain and his essay on corn pone opinions, the opinions of public, uh, of, of, of public opinion, 
the opinions of peers. You know, it's something we all know. They've studied this in sociology and psychology courses. Stanford has another of, number of classic studies on this where they find that people who, who have different opinions can be divided up into two groups and, and one of those groups is given information that is in favor of it and the other group is given information that is opposed to it and by and large what they find out is that those who agreed with it to start out with are even more in agreement and those who were in disagreement say I don't really think it was an accurate study. Corn pone opinions Mark Twain says. Theologian John Haidt says that while we want the truth we say we want the truth in reality, we are a morass of drives, desires, longing, cravings, wishes, and hopes, a jungle of desires. Some want safety, some want sensual desires, some want meaning, some just want to be liked. But it all gets tangled up in us. So we look around to those around us to decide, and we end up siding with them more than the truth. If we are to have a serious pursuit of truth, then it is a challenge for us to recognize that that is something that takes true discipline. Our Christian faith teaches us that if we do not seek the truth, if we do not nurture and develop a thirst for the truth, then every other good eventually will come crumbling down. King Herod, in this story, is a liar. He does not want to honor and pay homage to the babe in the manger. He wants to kill him. King Herod is a liar. That's how he rules. Here we have Herod on the throne lying and creating a culture of fear. Notice in the scripture text, it says, and all Jerusalem was afraid along with him. Herod was a liar. Cicela Bach in her classic book on lying takes a hard stance against it saying this, imagine a society where no matter how ideal it is in other respects, every word and gesture could never be counted upon. It's a society that becomes fragile. Bach goes on to say that lying is a form of violence. By its nature, it is coercive. It forces people to do what otherwise they would not choose to do. Bach lists six things that a lie does to coerce people, to force them. It, it leads them astray. It, it, it takes away the other person's power. It manipulates the other person like a puppet. It hides alternatives. It hides the true costs and benefits. It covers up reality and keeps people from true choice. A lie does not get any more true just because someone says it often enough. People who repeat a lie often begin to believe their own lies. King Herod, the power on the throne, is a liar. But he ends up a murderer. The thing that's so troubling to me about this story is to murder all those children in and around Bethlehem, he did not do it alone, 
There were others who were with him, who joined with him, who believed in the lie. Herod was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And all these people working together become destructive. In the biblical case, we have something of a genocide going on here. And all Jerusalem was afraid along Herod and it's the innocent ones, the infants who suffer the most. I think the story of the wise men is a cautionary tale. It starts with the lie of the individual, but it spreads to society. And the followers of Jesus are warned in this story, warned. In advance, really, this is a bracketing story with the crucifixion at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. The followers of Jesus are warned in this story that they need to learn to do the hard work and develop a passion for the truth, a passion for the real, to discover in the light of Christ what is true and real. Part of what I love about the Presbyterian Church is we have and we have had in our book of order, our constitution since the beginning of this denomination, six goals, the great ends of the church that are our goals that guide us. And one of those six goals is that we are people who seek to preserve the truth. The truth is something that is challenged these days. And it's challenged in part because of the technology that we have that allows anybody who has any corn pone opinion to shoot their mouth off and that statement can go global. The wise men were wise, I think, because they left their comfortable homes and went on a journey to discover the truth to open themselves in vulnerability to new people, new places, new ideas, strangers and strangeness. Seeking truth is a journey of discovering, testing, trying. Not every insight is in touch with reality and not every bright idea is a true idea. The people of faith who have a passion and a goal to be people who preserve the truth need to be critical, to not settle for surface understandings, to not put up with shallow understandings or false thinking. The words logic and illogic are part of how we think through things rationally and that illogic is just like it sounds, the, the root words, sick thinking, illogic. Some sick thinking may be kind of like having a cold. It doesn't seem to matter too much. But other sick thinking is a cancer of the worst kind and it will spread and it can be life-threatening to individuals, to people, and to nations. Herod, sitting on the throne, is a liar and he wants people to be afraid. In his flight from insight, he wanted to have power over people. In that regard, the wise men are more than wise. They are heroic 
because the wise men grasped that something was off with Herod's request. It did not smell right, it didn't pass the sniff test, and even if all the rest of Jerusalem was with Herod, the wise men were gonna take another road. We ourselves in society and we're tempted to listen to those around us, as Mark Twain would say, with corn pone ideas. We're defined in many ways by people around us. But as people of faith, we have to test reality for truth. Political leaders and religious leaders and all sorts of ways, we have to overcome that fear that leads us to follow down roads, the false ways, the self-deceptions that can become destructive. Something gave the wise men courage. And I think following the truth is an act of courage. Courage doesn't come simply from within us, but from something that inspires us beyond us. The wise men see the light, the light that's moving and drawing them forward. There's something transcendent. It's the transcendence that gives them courage, which is to say it is God who gives them courage to be lucid in a world that's gone mad with fear. What makes the wise men wise? I think they're wise because they're willing to go on a journey. A journey to study the star, to follow the transcendent presence. God initiates a new day in mysterious ways. And the question is, will we follow the star? Will we follow that transcendent urge? Will we open ourselves to God's leading us on a journey? Secondly, the wise men are wise because they honor Jesus. They kneel down and pay him homage. They do a ritual, and in that ritual they are transformed. There's a sense of joy that the journey had led them to. Thirdly, the wise men are wise because though they are outsiders to the faith, they recognize that the Bible has something that they need to hear. And they listen to what the Bible says and they come to discern and understand how it is guiding them. Fourthly, the wise men are wise because the power on the throne may seek to use them, but the wise men have this intuition, this feeling, this dream, and they pay attention to that. And that is part of their wisdom also. And so they choose to go not Herod's way, but to go another way. I think the wise men inspire us with their wisdom because that transcendent God calls us to pay attention to our moral intuitions, to go another way from where the crowd is going. Lastly, in the presence of Jesus, it says they were overwhelmed with joy. Maybe that's what I like best about what makes the wise men wise. In the presence of Jesus, they were overwhelmed with joy. The star in the east, a lot of times people want to talk about it in terms of a scientific astronomical phenomenon, but I think, I think it's a theological statement. 
about God's transcendent power to these people who were not Christians, these magi. Nevertheless, God can come. And, and in that you see God in Christ breaking down the walls, the barriers, the divisions, even from the beginning. That star in the east that they see Revelation 22 calls Jesus the bright morning star. I wonder if that's what that star means in Matthew. A star that lets everyone know, even before dawn, a whole new world is on the way. The light of Christ is on the move. This transcendence, this inexplicable transcendence shines in the night and is on the move to surprise us, to shock us, to recognize that a new world is coming in Jesus Christ and we no longer need to be afraid because Christ is with us. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God in Jesus Christ, we see the bright, radiant morning star to guide us into mystery, into newness, into a, a new world, to help us recognize when it's time to walk with strange companions into a new day. Lord, when we slumber, visit our sloth with disturbing dreams and help us to recognize that you give us unusual and inspiring gifts. Open our minds with unfamiliar wisdom and give us the courage to bear the newness that comes with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.